First Peter chapter five is where we will be this morning. We are closing in on the end of First Peter today, and then next week we'll have uh, one more sermon, and then we'll move on to a different series. But First Peter chapter five this morning. I don't need to tell you this; you already know it. But we are in the midst of a spiritual war. Um, it is not necessarily something new. It's been going on since time immemorial, but. Um, I think we need to recognize the fact that we are in a spiritual war. And there are some times where the war is much hotter, and there are some times where the war is a little more cool, a little harder to detect. I think we're in one of those hotter times myself, but that's just, you know, I'm not even 40 years old yet. So, you know, maybe I just haven't seen, lived long enough to see real hot warfare. But I do know that the enemies of God and the forces of God are in a battle. And we are part of that battle. So this morning, we have the call to be on guard. Stand with me as we read 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll read verses 8 through 11. This is 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11. It is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we do say amen to these things. Help us to be on guard. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. On guard. I'm not a fencer. I don't know much about fencing, but I do know that when, when you say on guard... That's the call to be ready. We need to be ready. We are in the middle of a war, and we need to be ready to fight in that war. Today, uh, we're going to do a little bit of enemy reconnaissance. I don't want that to be the focus because that's not the focus of the biblical text. But I do think we need to know good and well who our enemy is. And more than that, how to defeat that enemy. And that's kind of what Peter is talking about here. Remember, this is in the context of a letter that's being written to tell some folks who are enduring suffering that God is faithful in the midst of their suffering. He is writing to Christians, some of whom are being persecuted for their faith, some of whom are about to go through the fires of persecution. He's calling them, whether they are leaders or whether they are regular church members, whether they are uh, uh, some of the ones who are leading the way or some of the ones who are following the way. He's calling them all to humble themselves and to suffer for the cause of Christ faithfully and with endurance. This This is a guy, Peter, who has to keep having flashbacks while he's writing this letter. I've said several times there are certain things he said that go back to things Jesus told him. And, and even, in, even in this, I can picture him flashing back to the, those moments. It's the last night. Jesus has a precious few hours left and he's talking to his disciples. And in one of those exchanges directly with Peter, Jesus tells him and us, 
the nature of this spiritual war that's going on. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this verse is that word you. Both of the times that it appears, that's a plural you. He's not just talking to Simon Peter and saying it's just you he wants. He's talking to all of his disciples. He's telling them all, you guys, Satan wants you. He wants to sift you. But then he turns to Simon Peter in the next verse and he says directly to him, because the you's change, listen to verse 32, but I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith may not fail. He's looking at Simon Peter and says, Peter, I've been praying for you. In spite of the fact that Satan wants to sift all of you out and wants to destroy this body of believers that I am building, I have prayed specifically for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And I want you to know something. He's not just praying specifically for Peter. Bible tells us that Jesus is praying for each and every one of us constantly at the throne of the Father. That the Holy Spirit is praying for us consistently. That he's doing this and doing this and doing this. Jesus is right now interceding on your behalf and on mine. He says, I pray for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, because I know you're going to turn, but when you do, strengthen your brothers. I, I just feel like Peter's having flashbacks. By the way, the very next verse is when Peter says, I'm not, I'm, I'm ready to go to prison and even to death for you. And Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. There's this ongoing spiritual battle, even to this day. And I, I don't need to, I keep saying that, not because you need to hear it because you don't believe it. I, I'm saying it because we need to be in the frame of mind that recognizes that we're in war. We don't need to be in the peacetime mindset. Because the child of God is always at war against an enemy. So Jesus calls us in this spiritual fight to engage in the battle. He calls us to be on guard. Verse Peter 5, verse 8. Look at the very beginning of it. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Sober-minded. That's Sober-minded means you're aware. You're not drunk. You're not distracted. Your mind isn't flooded around with a whole bunch of other things. What makes magic really good? The distraction. A magician will not perform the magic trick well unless he can get you distracted from what's happening. And so what he'll do is he'll get you to focus on one thing while the other hand does the trick. A great example of this is, uh, uh, I saw this show one time where Penn of Penn and Teller was explaining magic to the crowd and talking about how you take the focus of someone and you can do whatever you want. He had this woman and was doing these tricks where she would cut the string and the string would, he'd magically mend it together in his hand. Y'all ever seen that kind of thing? And what he had, uh, she was on this side and in this ear he had this little piece of string the same kind of rope that she was supposedly cutting, he, she was actually cutting this little strand of it. And he would kind of hold it in his hand so that the rope itself would be down here, but that little piece would be up here. So she's cutting the, the small piece and the big rope is still there. And he would kind of palm that other piece out 
And she'd be looking at the rope, and while she was doing that, he threw it over his back. Now, everybody in the audience can see it. Everybody else on the stage can see it, but she couldn't see it. Why? Because she was distracted by something else. And so he does this, and he even at one point gets a whole bunch of these that he has in his pocket, all these little strings. And he says, here, sprinkle all these on top of it, and, the, and then he just lets the, the one she cut down fall down with it. And there's the rope, all clean. And she's amazed, and everybody else is laughing because they see what's going on. You see, if a magician can get you to focus on something, he can get you not to focus on the main thing. To get you to focus so intently on what's happening that you miss what's happening. You got to watch the other hand, right? That's not just a strategy of a magician. That's the strategy of our enemy. If he can get you distracted, if he can get you focused squarely on this little, tiny, minute thing, what else can he do? Y'all, I got to be honest with you. Sometimes, sometimes we just lose focus. And that sober mind, it doesn't just mean don't be drinking. Though, obviously, it's a lot harder to focus when you're drunk. It means not to get distracted either. Be clear-minded. Be watchful. Uh, a, a word that the founding fathers would sometimes use in, in taking care to protect the liberties that they were instilling into the nation through the Constitution and, and through early laws, through the setting up of the government and things like that, was the word vigilance. In fact, I think, uh, I think Jefferson said that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. We have to be vigilant. We have to take very care. We have to pay close attention, but not get so narrowly focused that we miss the big picture. We've got to be alert. If we are going to do what God has called us to do, if we are going to fight in the spiritual battle, we have to keep our eyes open and be alert to all of the dangers all around and not get distracted or drunk or whatever to lose focus on the big picture. He calls us to be on guard because we're in a war. And a soldier that's not on guard is a soldier that's in grave danger. He calls us to be on guard because we have an enemy seeking to destroy us. Jesus calls us to be on guard because we've got an enemy. And that enemy does not want to just beat us. He wants to destroy us. We see that in uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil. Now let's stop right there for just a second. We often think the enemy is another person. We think the enemy is somebody else. We think the enemy is that person that's sitting across the counter yelling at us because their order was wrong. We think the enemy is that neighbor that's always rude and ugly to us, always throwing trash out that blows into our yard. We think the enemy is that kid that rides around the neighborhood knocking over mailboxes. We think the enemy is that teacher that teaches our kids the junk and garbage that we don't want them to hear about behind our backs. We think the enemy is that politician that's good for nothing and talks a good game maybe once in a while on TV but never does anything important, never does anything that actually matters. We think the enemy are all these different people that are out protesting things that we think are right. We think the enemy is somebody else and the fact of the matter is those are not our enemies. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. 
Now they may be working for the enemy. They may be part of the enemy's army. But that's a whole other thing from being the enemy himself. We cannot get distracted by the enemy's foot soldiers and miss the enemy. When you are in battle, especially in that day when it's all foot battle, you are trained to go after one guy, the king. Everyone try to get to the king. Why? Because he's the enemy. Everybody else is just fighting for him. Now I might have to fight you to try to get to him. I might have to engage in warfare, combat with you, but you are not my enemy. That is my enemy and I'm going after him. Right? We cannot make the person the enemy because that's not our enemy. Now, we may have to fight them. We may have to combat them. We may have to go against them. But that's a whole other thing from how we fight the real enemy. I say that because it's so easy to mix the two up. It's easy for me. It's easy for all of us. We have an adversary, and it's Satan himself. Satan, the Hebrew name for the devil, means the accuser. He's not... He's not a friendly guy that just believes some other stuff that we don't. He is against God in every imaginable way. And he's looking to destroy us. Our enemy does not seek just to conquer. Our enemy does not seek to win out. Our enemy does not seek to uh, engage in the battle of ideas to really see what is best. Our enemy wants to destroy us. You're adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour it's an interesting picture of the lion that were uh, first do y'all know how a lion hunts now when we think prowling around the, the picture that we get is this lion kind of stately you know with its head held high on all fours walking around like he owns the place that's not how a lion hunts. When lions hunt, they're cats. Okay? They're big cats, but they're cats. They sneak. They get low, especially in the tall grasses where they can hide, and they creep. And once they get in position, one of them might stand up and let out this giant roar, but you know why he's doing that? So they'll scatter in the other directions, and the other lions can get them. I'm, he, he's the decoy. And when all, the, all these animals are running away from this lion, they're running straight to the other lions that are waiting in ambush. This is how our enemy attacks. He sneaks. The, the word for prowls has two meanings. One is to walk around. So it's literally to move around. In the Gospels, you see somebody who cannot move, somebody who cannot walk, and then he walks because Jesus heals him. Uh, that's the word used. He rose, took up his bed, and he walked. That, that, that's this word. But it comes to figuratively mean the way you live life. We talk about walking in the way, walking with Jesus. That, that's that kind of meaning. This isn't just the devil going around looking for someone to devour. This is him living out his nature. He is naturally devouring because he doesn't care about you. Oh, it seems like, look, I know how it looks. He's Lucifer. He's an angel of light. He looks like he cares. 
You've seen these people uh, that, that, that do, do this kind of thing. They'll, they'll, they'll look like they care about you. And they'll give you all these different reasons how they really like you and how, how they're, they're really looking out for your best interest. But in the end, what they're really doing is deceiving you. He has no problem deceiving. He's the father of lies. Deception comes from him. He has no problem lying to your face and then turning around and stabbing you in the back. He has no problem doing that. That's his nature. This is who our enemy is. He's looking for someone to devour. Problem is, he doesn't have to look very hard because there's tons of folks willing to be devoured. They don't know any better. They trust his lies. They're deceived by his appearance. Things that sound good. Follow your heart. Be yourself. The truth lies within you. Those kinds of things are just propaganda of the enemy. Because that's not what Scripture teaches us. That's not what God has declared truth to be. He defines truth. And the truth isn't follow your heart. Your heart is deceitful. The truth is follow Him. The truth isn't that, that be yourself. The truth is you can't be who you're meant to be until you're submissive to the one who made you that way in the first place. You can't. Just because it sounds good doesn't mean it is good. Satan is really good at making a lie look good, but it's still a lie. We have an enemy, and he wants to destroy us. Can I give you some good news, though? Warren Rearsby wrote a little book called The Strategy of Satan. Listen to how he puts it. When God permits Satan to light the furnace, he always keeps his own hand on the thermostat. You see, even though the enemy is trying to destroy you, there is a all-powerful God. Now, Satan may be powerful, but he is not all-powerful. God is all-powerful. And so even when Satan is opposing you, and even when he's fighting you, and even when he's seeking to devour you, even when he wants to have you, we have the all-powerful God, and if we'll just trust him, just sit in his hand, he won't devour us. So what do we do? How do we fight this fight? We've got this enemy that wants to destroy us, so we're called to be on guard. How do we engage in the fight? First, we actively oppose our enemy. You can't passively fight. You ever tried to passively fight? Have you, anybody ever tried to get in a fight? Like a physical fight, but not really do anything. Just kind of just kind of make snarky comments. Can I tell you something? You'll get really beat up that way. You have to actually engage in the fight. You might still get beat up, but at least you'll go down swinging, right? You're not going to go down because you're just standing there and somebody hits you, right? You're going you're gonna to at least be fighting back, right? We have to actively oppose our enemy. We can't just stand there while he waylays. Look, look at verse 9. The very beginning of it. Resist him. That word resist, you know what it means? It means active opposition. In fact, resist. You ever try to you ever try to open a door with someone on the other side pushing the door closed? Resistance. In electricity, you have these resistors that make it hard for the electricity to flow. 
It's active opposition. It's not just passive. It's not just I'm going to sit in the way and not really do anything. It's an active opposition. We are not just to stand against the devil. We are called to fight against the devil. We have to actually, actively oppose him. And the way to do that, by the way, is just do what God wants us to do. You know, I mean, because what is he after? Does he just want to devour us? Well, devouring us is kind of nice, but you know what he's really after? He's really opposing God. So if we are doing what God wants, we are actively resisting God's opposition. That's what we're called to do. Resist him. Stand up against him. That doesn't mean, listen, that doesn't mean you have to be ugly or rude to people, but sometimes you got to stand up and not let evil happen. What, what, what did uh, Martin Luther King say? Evil prevails when good men do nothing. You know, it's so easy to defeat evil. It's not really easy to defeat evil, is it? But it's so easy in the end. It often turns out that the smallest acts can overwhelm. Think, think about it for a second. How many times have you seen a bully in a school and they bully and they bully and they bully and teachers try to talk to them or administrators try to talk to them or adults try to talk to them or they try all these different things. They do all these different things. But all it really takes is some kid finally having enough and standing up to them. And then the bully realizes, well, I don't want to do this anymore. Sometimes all it takes is just a small stand. Now, with our enemy, it's not just going to take a small stand. It's going to take a long stand. It's going to take a big stand. It's going to take all of God's people standing together. That means each one of us has to be involved, doesn't it? We actively oppose our enemy. We don't just, we don't just passively sit by and let it happen. We stand up. We stand against. We resist. Second thing we do, we actively oppose our enemy. But you know, it's a whole lot easier to stand when we've got a firm footing, isn't it? So we are firmly rooted in faith. Firmly rooted. Trees stand firm because of good roots. You ever try to get rid of kudzu? Good roots. Really good roots. Painfully good roots. We are to be firmly rooted. Resist him, Peter says, firm in your faith. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We got a firm foundation, y'all. But we got to be rooted in it. We can't just do this willy-nilly. We can't just do this on our own. We can't just say, you know what? I'm going to stand up to the enemy, but I have no clue what God has said in His Word. Jesus, Jesus is met by the tempter in the desert. After 40 days of not eating or drinking anything, he's weak, he's tired, he is ready, probably ready to go home. And Satan comes and says, you look hungry. Why don't you eat something? Here, here's a stone. You say you're the son of God? Surely the son of God can make a loaf out of a stone. Go ahead. What does Jesus do? He goes back to his faith. He goes back to the fundamentals and he says, man doesn't live by bread alone. He's not just quoting a verse. You know what he's really doing? He's going back to first principles and he's saying, no, 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 no. No, that doesn't line up 
with what God has said. Satan says, well, I can do that too. Why don't you, here, takes him to the top of the temple. Maybe it's a vision. Maybe it's, it's like really transports there. I don't know. He says, throw yourself down. It is written. Satan even says it is written. He takes a verse or two. And Jesus says, don't test the Lord your God. Back to first principles. Back to the faith. Back to the foundation. Satan says, look, look, you're, you're, you're going to, you say you're going you're gonna to win. You're the son of God. You're going to have all these nations. Why go through all the trouble? Why go through all the mess? Why go through all of the pain and all the suffering and all the anguish and all the difficulty? Just bow to me. I'll give it all to you right now. Take a shortcut. He says you should only worship and serve the Lord your God. Back to first principles. Back to the things that are foundational. We are firmly rooted in our faith. We have to have that kind of faith that no matter what the temptation is, God has already addressed it in his word. We have to have the kind of faith that is so firmly rooted in that that no matter what the temptation is, we have our roots deep enough that we know what God wants. And sometimes it's a question of, does God want me to do this with my life or that with my life? He, sometimes we have those big existential kind of questions. Sometimes we have those questions of, I'm not sure what the next step to take is. I don't know what decision I should make. Sometimes we encounter those things and we need prayer and, and we seek after God's will, maybe with fasting, maybe with the help of others, godly people around us. But when it comes to temptation to sin, God's word should be so deep within our hearts that we know the answer before we even ask. We need to be firmly rooted in faith. And by the way, we're not alone. We struggle together with the body. That's, that's the third thing. The third way we fight is together. We actively oppose our enemy. We're firmly rooted in our faith and we, we fight together. You and me, brothers in arms, in the trenches together. In fact, I think you got a little dirt on the side of your shirt from those trenches. We struggle together. We don't struggle by ourselves. If you're struggling by yourself, you're not doing this right. If you're struggling by yourself and you're part of this church family, we're not doing this right, church. We struggle together. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing, knowing what? The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. It's so easy to feel all alone, especially when you're stuck at home, some kind of physical problem, emotional problem, mental problem. You feel like you're all by yourself. You feel like you're the only one that has ever experienced it, or maybe you're not that, that direct with it. You just feel like no one else can really understand what you're going through. Can I tell you something? You're not alone. Not only is God always with you, he's always with you. It's not just an idea. It's not just a promise. It's not just words on a page. It's a reality. But we also struggle together. Because even if I'm not going through the same thing you are, I still love you. Even if you're not facing the same difficult decision that I'm facing, you still love me. And maybe there's a direct way that, that we can help each other through those times. Maybe it's less direct. Maybe it's just being there. A hug, pat on the back, a note in the mail, phone call at the right time. 
but we struggle together because we're all going through this suffering. We're all in this battle. And sometimes it looks like the enemy has you surrounded. Sometimes it looks like the enemy's forces are all around you and you can't see a ray of hope anywhere in the fight. Can I tell you something? You're still not alone. We struggle together. We're better that way. Final thing. It's not just about the fight that we're in the middle of right now. You have to remember that this is part of a war. And that war eventually will be won. Oh, it looks bad now. You look at it and and the fighting is intense and you feel like, how in the world? How are we going to win? How is God going to make good out of this? Sometimes you look at it and you say, with all of this pain, with all of this, all of this sorrow and grief, how could God do anything with this? That's when you need to look forward. Because there's a future ahead that's a whole lot better than the present. So the fourth way we fight is we look forward. Because there's some rewards on the horizon. And I'm not saying we do this for the rewards. I'm just saying the rewards are a nice comforting thought sometimes. Because we need to remember that God wins in the end. We look forward. We don't just look back. Though sometimes it's helpful to look back. Especially when God has been faithful. And you can look back and see it. Sometimes that helps. But Paul, Paul says, forgetting what is behind. All those things I've given up. All, all that life that I used to live. Forgetting all that. I press on. We look forward. After you have suffered a little while, he says in verse 10. The God of all grace. Boy, isn't that a comforting thought? The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then the praise of him in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. But look at verse 10. I want want to focus in on this because I want you to see just the kinds of rewards we're talking about here. After you've suffered a little while, the suffering you're undergoing might be intense, but it's brief. And the brevity of our suffering pales in comparison to the eternality of His glory. God's glory lasts far longer than the suffering does. And the glory in which He has called us to, we will be there too. We will be sharing in that glory too. And so the suffering's for a little while, but that's eternal. It might be severe, but the severity of our glory falters in comparison to the greatness of his grace. Did you, did, did you see it? The God of all grace. There's plenty of grace. He tells, Peter, or he tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. That doesn't mean, by the way, that he barely has enough. God must have a giant refrigerator to keep all those leftovers of grace because he abounds in it. And so we suffer and we suffer heavy and and it it hurts and it's severe, but the greatness of his grace will blow the depths of our suffering out of the water. It'll hardly seem like a speed bump. And that, that suffering may cause us so much pain, so much difficulty, so many bruises and hurts might break our hearts, but the anguish of our suffering dims in comparison with the effervescence of his rewards. Look at the rewards. He will restore. That means any loss we incur is more than repaid. 
That doesn't mean that you'll get your money back. That doesn't mean that that some somebody gets taken away in the process and you'll see them again. They might, if they're a Christian, they'll, in, they'll be in heaven. That That's great, but it's more than that. It's all those hurts, all those boo-boos, all that pain will be healed. He'll confirm us. The idea of this word is to make something more capable. Not just, not just to, to, to make it capable, but to make it more capable. We got we to gotta fight on our hands. And if we're going to resist Satan, we need all the capability we can get. And God says, I'll confirm you. We, we talk about a confirmation process in, in, uh, the, in politics. The president nominates someone and the Senate has to confirm them. It's like God giving his seal of approval as we fight the good fight. He'll strengthen us. He'll provide the strength that we need to stand firm and fight. You know, sometimes we get weak. Sometimes we don't have quite enough. Sometimes we struggle so much that we just feel like we can't go on. And it's at that point, it's at that point that he strengthens us. He'll establish us. He lays that firm foundation for us to build our lives upon. And he sets us upon our solid rock. How firm a foundation is laid for you, saints of the Lord. It's a firm foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can we say but to you he hath said? We, we, we couldn't add anything to it. We couldn't make it any more firm, any more stable, any more secure. And by the way, that, that brings up a point. Do you notice that all of this has been driving toward this theme of security, of maturity? Look back through the chapter and you'll see the humiliation of, of humbling ourselves to each other as leaders to those who follow by, by loving them and shepherding them. Followers to the leaders by submitting to them. We humble ourselves because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So we humble ourselves and, and we, we humble under God's mighty hand so that at the right time He exalts us and we cast our cares on Him. All of this serving to, to enable us to fight this fight, to be sober-minded and watchful and vigilant, to, to watch out for our enemy, but to instead, and not just to, to look out for him, but to fight him, to resist him. All of this is leading us firm in our faith to recognize that the suffering is going on by many others who are before us, but that God, when the time comes, will finally finish his work in us. It's talking about our Christian maturity. The calls of humility and vengeance. The reminders of reward amid the reality of suffering. God is maturing us through every single bit of it. Making us measure to the fullness of Christ. All of this evil and anguish. All of this persecution and suffering. All of this fighting. It's all tools in God's hands to make us complete. So get up, child of God. Put your armor on, grab your sword, and be on guard. Father, in this time, we turn to you because we look to you for where to go now. Lord, we know that you are calling us to be on guard, calling us to be engaged in this warfare that is going on all around us. 
And for some of us, we may not be engaged in the war because we're tired and, and we feel like we fought enough. God, God, strengthen us, confirm us, restore us, establish us that we may continue fighting for you. Some of us may not be in this fight because we have been sitting on the sidelines thinking that's not for me. That's not my fight. Or, or I don't know that I can fight. Father, this moment, this time, would you show us that there is an enemy who wants to destroy us, but that you, God, you give us the power to overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony, we will overcome our enemy. Father, would you, would you get us off the sidelines and into the fight? Father, maybe some of us aren't fighting because we've never known you in the first place. Lord, this moment, this time, would you reveal yourself to those who do not know you? Would you show them your grace? Reveal to them your son who died for them and who rose from the dead that they may have life. Would you call them to you? Father, for those of us who are fighting, equip us, strengthen us, sustain us. Help us to know you are near and give us that second wind to fight harder for you. Wherever we are, you, you, you show us what you want us to do. You lead us and we'll follow. Father, we are so grateful for who you are and everything you've done. May we honor you through this spiritual war until the day when Jesus comes on that white horse and puts an end to it, wins the victory once and for all. Father, you do your work in us while we sing this song. In Christ's name, amen.